Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Living Hope Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information about our church, please visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com. Please join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your character and your nature that is good and kind, that rescues, that loves us, that comes to us. Lord, we are appreciative, we are grateful. It is our desire to glorify you, to make you famous, that others would know about you. Today, as we look at your word, we invite you to speak to each one of us. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Uh, So some of you may know I was in Phoenix this last week, um, where it was very warm, or at least so I'm told. I was in a boardroom the entire time, uh, and only got out of the hotel to go to and from the airport. Uh, But it was still a good time. We had the the USMB National Board meetings were this uh, last week. This is the first time that we've been able to meet in person uh, for a very long time, and so, so that was good. Um, about just a little bit of background. So about five or six years ago, uh, I was nominated to, to sit on our, our USMB national board and uh, talked about it with our local church board, and, and they affirmed that, and so did that uh, for four years, and, and that, that was good. I really enjoyed getting to know a lot of the other just kind of leaders within our denomination and within our conference and uh, getting to know them better and working alongside them. And, um, yeah, it was really it was a, it was a good time. Uh, and then about a year and a half ago, I uh, was up for a, a second term, um, but this time they, they asked me if I would chair the board. And so I uh, talked with Joanne about it, and I said, I, you know, I don't think it'll be much work. I think I just have to lead a couple meetings, and it should be fine. And um, that proved to be incredibly untrue. Um, lest you think that it's really hot stuff to be the chair of the USMB National Board, I assure you, it is not. Uh, at all. It just basically means that you have more work and you have more stress and no one really cares. So um, that, is, that is what the last uh, year and a half has, has been like and I, we just had some stuff come up that was just required a lot of stress and a lot, I don't know if it required stress, it resulted in stress. So uh, there, there for a while, um, yeah, I was having to dedicate one or two like full-time office days just to board stuff and uh, kept the, the, our church leadership board informed of all that, and they, they knew about it. Uh, fortunately, I believe that time has passed, and we've kind of made it through that. Uh, that was a tiring season, though. Um, not like I need a nap tired, but just like my soul is tired. Uh, when, will, when will this be, be over? And, um, but so anyways, that, is, that has been uh, kind of just what the last couple days were like and, and that season of life. But I tell you all of that to tell you this, or really to remind you of this, and that is that that we are part of a bigger family, and that is a really good thing. That serves us well. It's it, there. There's benefits for us. There, there's benefits for them uh, to be able to link together with other like-minded churches to do this together, uh, to pool our resources and even talent and, and, and vision is just a good thing. There will always be some kind of problem. There will, I mean, we live in a fallen, broken world, so there will always be messiness. And like we were doing a little bit of new board member orientation, and I told them, if it were easy, someone else would have dealt with it. 
Like if we're having to talk about it, it's because there are no easy solutions and there is no easy path forward. Um, if it's easy, someone else would have done it a, a long time ago. So that, that will just always be there. Um, but, but at the same time, though, it is just, it, it's good for us to be part of, of a larger family. I would also say this. This is just kind of a little anecdotal um, observation um, as I have kind of worked with, with some of these boards and that kind of thing. The more I interact with them in person, the more I like them. The more I interact with them via email, the more I find them annoying. <laughs> so, just your strategy in life and moving forward and business and denominational work. I mean, Zoom calls are great mainly because they're cheap and you can multitask and do other things while pretending to be engaged and all kinds of other stuff. Um, but the, there is a value in just face-to-face that, that, that can't be overlooked. And so it is, at times it is worth the money spent to fly everyone in and, and meet face-to-face for for some of this. I, I would also say this. I think that, you know, denominational uh, involvement, conference involvement, that kind of thing, in some ways it's kind of like a marriage. And that is that if you neglect it, it will deteriorate. If you neglect it, after a while you will just start to be like, why are we doing this and why are we a part of this and couldn't we just be better off on our own and maybe we should bail, right? Like if you neglect it. But if you tend to it, and if you maintain it, and if you invest in it, there is, there is companionship, there is comfort, there is fun, there is collaboration, there is looking out for one another, there is supporting one another during the hard times, during the, the, the weak times, um, that kind of thing. And so there is value to it, but it does require just a continual uh, investment on our part um, in, this, in this broader community, in, in this broader uh, conference and, and denomination. So uh, I am thankful that, that we're part of, of, of a bigger family uh, and, and of a good family, and that gives me hope. Uh, historically, Mennonite brethren have enjoyed being known as people of the book. And I don't know if we gave ourselves that title or if someone else gave us that title or who first said those words, but, but somewhere that description of people of the book came about as, as kind of a, a label for us historically, we place a high value on Scripture. We believe that Scripture is true. We believe that Scripture is inspired by God. Um, scripture is not God, so we don't worship Scripture, but we do acknowledge that it leads us to God. It, uh, and so um, just acknowledging it that way. And, and, that tr- and that Scripture just has good wisdom for daily living and how to do life well and raising kids and marriage and family and church and community and and that kind of thing. We also believe that that the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of Scripture, and so as we study Scripture, we're always also just trying to listen to the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, like, what does this mean, and what were you trying to convey, and and how does this uh, apply to me? And in some ways, it's really great, because it's like you have the author right there with you as as you're working through it, and so we, we acknowledge that. So we've been doing this series looking at at classic Old Testament stories and people and institutions and and how they foretell the the story of Jesus. And today we're looking at the story of David. Um, David had a pretty full and wild life. Uh, Some of it is pretty amazing. There are stories of valor that we still talk about today. 
um, he definitely had his low points as well. Uh, I mean, the times that he was on the run from government, from family, from friends, quote, friends, right, who, who are trying to kill him, um, having to hide in caves. His family life was all over. Uh, I'm sure there were high points, but there are just also these incredible seasons of just phenomenal dysfunction and phenomenal pain uh, that I just, I, I, I can't even begin to, to wrap my, my head around. Uh, David started his life as a shepherd. He was the youngest boy in his family. Um, and I, really at that point in time, there was nothing about his life that would have seemed extraordinary uh, or even out of the usual, pretty plain, pretty simple, pretty unimpressive. And then one day, the high priest of the land shows up at the house and says, let me, let me see the sons, and, and, he, and he meets all, all the sons, and, but he d- doesn't want any of them, and then eventually they pull in David from the field, and this high priest proceeds to pour oil on David's head and uh, says that, hey, you're going to be king. And this is how it reads. So in 1 Samuel 16.6, I'm going to read this to you, and it will also be on the screen. Here's a story. When, when they came, um, so this, I, um, the, the high priest, uh, when they had come, uh, he looked at Eliab and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And we could unpack that for about three months, but we're not going to. But just know that there's a lot there. Then Jesse, so that's the dad, then Jesse called uh, Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made uh, Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. And so this is David. Uh, he sent and brought him in. Now he was um, a ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. There's a lot we unpack in that one as well. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. There's a lot in there that, that, we, that we could unpack, so, so much good stuff. Um, you know, it's, I think if I had been David and that had happened, I would have thought, all right, let's do this thing. I'll start tomorrow. I'm 11 years old, but that's okay, you know got the anointing thing we're good um it would probably be about 20 more years before david actually stepped into the office of king and between that moment of anointing and actually stepping into the office of king was really really rough uh smart people have spent a lot of time trying to piece together the clues and assembling kind of an estimate of age and time stamps uh, on David's life. The only a real certain time stamp we have is that he was 30 uh, when he became king. And so, but using clues, they, they've kind of unpacked it like this. So the estimate is that around 1040 BC, David is born. 
Uh, somewhere between age 15 and 20, he defeats Goliath. Um, also, during that time, he's a musician before Saul. Um, and, yeah, um, but then Saul would, like, have these fits and get mad and throw spears at David while he was trying to play. Um, somewhere in this time frame, also, Saul gives his daughter Michael in marriage to David. Somewhere, uh, estimate between age 25 and 30, David is a fugitive from Saul. He is on the run. He is hiding in caves. Um, there's a lot of men uh, who join him during this time. And also his wife, uh, Michael, is, is given to another man. I may be saying that, that wrong. Um, age 30, so that's only confirmed age, David becomes king. The elders of all the tribes make him basically make a covenant with David. They reference two things. They reference his military success. But they also reference prophecies about him becoming king. So they, they knew that, that some of this stuff had transpired. Uh, during um, those first years, he uses Hebron as his capital city. But after about seven years, he's able to conquer Jerusalem. Um, and for the rest of his kingship, that's his, cap- his capital city. Sometimes he, it's called the city of David. Um, all total, David rules as king for 40 years, from age 30 to 70. Roughly age 47... He has an affair with Bathsheba. Um, their first child together dies, but their second child is Solomon, who eventually replaces David as king. Also, somewhere in that time frame, another son of David, an adult son, um, rapes his half-sister. So David had multiple wives, so the son of one wife violates the daughter of another wife. Um, and basically gets away with it until Absalom, brother to Tamar, very patiently, waits two years, and then kills Amnon. So now we have the son of one wife killing the son of uh, uh, another wife. Uh, Absalom lives in exile for a few years. He's eventually brought back, um, eventually sort of restored to favor. But then when David is age 60, Absalom proceeds to stage a coup. Uh, government takeover. Um, there is a battle over the throne. David and his men win, but Absalom is killed in the fighting. And David is so distraught about the death of his son that his general tells him, unless you get up and go out and thank your men, like you will lose the throne. Um, and so David, kind of in, in this place of grieving, I mean, he lost his son, but retained the, the kingship. And uh, so he almost loses the throne at that point. Also, there's a guy by the name of Sheba. He stages a rebellion against David. Maybe, probably, David would have been in his mid-60s. Also, somewhere during that time, David does this thing where he counts the Israelites, where he counts the fighting men. Now, this was a big no-no because God had very explicitly commanded him, you never count the fighting men. Because God had said, I want your trust in me, not in the numbers. So this was a bit, and, and everyone knew this, right? I mean, like David's own general is so disgusted by this, he doesn't even count all of them, right? The, the consequences of that is that God sends a plague that wipes out 70,000 men, which, the, and again, I mean, there's like some parts of scripture suggest that, you know, David did this, some su- suggest that God inspired David to do this be, because he was frustrated with, with the Israelites. But at the same time, I'm still just amazed at that when leadership makes a bad decision 70,000 people die and how the consequences of poor leadership results in the pain and suffering of so many that that they are striving to lead 
Somewhere in his mid-60s, David goes out to the battlefield. Um, there is another giant there, much like Goliath, uh, and, and they go at it, but David becomes exhausted. Uh, but his men uh, jump in and save him, and after that they say, David, from now on, you're not allowed to go on the battlefield. You're done. You're retired. You, you stay home after this. Uh, which really, I mean, mid-60s, that's not bad to begin with. Then at around age 69, one of his other sons, um, Adonijah, um, tries to set himself up as king, kind of tries to, to stage a coup, basically holds his own crowning ceremony. Nathan the prophet finds out. He tells Bathsheba. Bathsheba tells David. And then David moves really quickly to install his son Solomon on the throne. And then at age 70, David dies. So David's life is pretty wild. It's pretty tumultuous. Um, honestly, I had a really hard time imagining the connection between David's life and Jesus. Like, on, like with, with, with that kind of life story, um, I, I, I kind of struggle to see the similarities, right? I mean, David's life is so full of um, warfare, and it's so full of dysfunctional family drama. It was, it's hard for me to, to see the parallels. But because in some of the other stories we've looked at, right, like there is a, the, 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 the story of the life is the parallel to the story of, of the life of Jesus. Whereas with David, really the similarities are more around offices held, uh, around lineage, and even around prophecies. Um, a, a couple of examples, right? I mean, God promises that one of David's descendants will always be on the throne of Israel as king of Israel. So, uh, Jeremiah thirty-three seventeen, 17. Um, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Revelation twenty-two sixteen. So this is, I mean, this is end times when, when things are wrapping up. Jesus still refers to himself as a son of David or in the lineage of David. This is Jesus talking. I am in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. I am the root and the descendant of David. So even then, Jesus is still referencing his connection, his kind of his biological, uh, genealogical connection to David. Um, David wrote at least 73 psalms. Some of those psalms are what are called messianic psalms in that they predict some aspect of of the life of Christ. But in those psalms, you can also see almost kind of like this duality where you can see how perhaps David was was writing about himself or, or his situation but at the same time, perhaps had this awareness that he was also writing uh, about the Messiah who would come one day, right? Like there's kind of this, this, this dual function that is taking place with some of these psalms. So let me give you four similarities be- between David and Jesus and, and how they apply to us and how they affect our everyday living. So we've all already seen how David grew up as shepherd. Um, scripture also calls Jesus the good shepherd. So I would start there. Both of them have uh, this, this place or, or have taken this role of shepherd. Psalm 23, written by David. The Lord, speaking of God, speaking prophetically of Jesus, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, right? We're very familiar with this. John 10, verse 11, Jesus is talking and he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Um, I've not uh, personally worked with sheep a whole lot, but uh, I am told that they're uh, really dumb uh, and that they have zero natural defenses or protection. I mean, like, they're just 
really vulnerable, kind of worthless out there, just kind of on their own. Sheep need a good shepherd. Sheep need a, a good shepherd for, for their health, for their, their, their safety, their, their protection. And God is saying that he wants to care for us like the good shepherd cares for his sheep. If, if we will let Jesus be our shepherd, then Psalm 23 becomes our life story. If we will let Jesus be our good shepherd, then Psalm 23 can become our life story. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in the green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, for he is with me. The rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Not financial benefit, not necessarily good health, not political fame, goodness and mercy. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. With Jesus as our shepherd, that becomes our life story. Here's the second similarity. I had never looked at it this way before until uh, this last week. Some people pointed this out. Um, but in a sense that both of them were giant slayers. Both of them slayed the giant. Um, and, and this is kind of a, an interesting thing. So most, of, most people are familiar with the story of David and Goliath, right? Very famous story. We have Goliath. He's a giant. He's very tall. He is a professional, um, skilled fighting man. Uh, he had the best uh, weapons and technology uh, of the time. And in regards to skill, it said that he had basically been fighting men since his youth, right? So he is he's a professional at this. He is the, the best, uh, you know, in, in the Philistine army. Then you have David. He's a young shepherd boy, probably a teenager. He has a sling. Wow. You know, like not a lot going on there. But the key difference is if, if you read that story, the key difference is right before both of them come to battle, both of them invoke their gods. And Goliath invokes his false god, his demonic god, but David calls upon the power of Yahweh, and really from that point forward, it's an unfair fight. Like, from that point forward, Goliath doesn't stand a chance. Like, I mean, it's, it, it's a done deal, it's sealed, it's over with. Like, it, at, at that point, it's just, it's completely unfair. Um, Goliath, you know, David smokes him in the head with rock, kills him, uh, David wins. Jesus goes to the cross. By all accounts, he has lost. Right? Or he is about to lose. In the earthly realm, uh, he is up against Rome. He's up against Roman soldiers. In the spiritual realm, he is up against death. He is up against Satan himself. But Jesus goes forward in the power of Yahweh. And because of that, never a fair fight. Jesus wins. The others never stood a chance. Jesus dies, but he is raised to life again. Satan is defeated. Death is defeated. He, even the Roman soldiers, in a way, are defeated. Colossians 2, verses 15. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed 
the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.55, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the, the third area um, where, where David and, and Jesus are, are alike, that the people have pointed out. And this is a side of Jesus that we really don't speak of a whole lot, but understanding Jesus as warrior. Um, in Scripture, really both David and, and Jesus are known as warriors. David obviously saw a lot of battles in his lifetime, uh, killed a, a lot of people. Um, the, so the first time Jesus comes to earth... He focuses in on setting up the church, providing salvation, you know, leaving the Holy Spirit, teaching his disciples, right? But that, that primary purpose around salvation. In, in that first visit, no physical fighting is done, but a lot of spiritual fighting takes place, and Jesus is victorious. Now, kind of a bit of a trick question is what is the last picture that we see of Jesus? People will sometimes jump back to when Jesus ascended into heaven. But actually, the last picture of Jesus in Scripture occurs in Revelation 19.11. And, and this is how Jesus is described. This is the last picture of Jesus in all of Scripture. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many uh, diadems. That's like a crown. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the a fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We tend to focus a lot on Jesus as my friend, which is true. But sometimes if we only stay in that place, sometimes we can get a little bit careless or, or a little bit flippant, really on how we view Jesus, and I think sometimes we just, the pendulum swings too far one way, and we just think Jesus is just like this kind of really soft beta male who just whispers in nice words the whole time. When Jesus comes again, it's going to be terrifying. Not so much for us as Christians, but for the rest of the world, that is going to be terrifying. And, and part of that is why we beg people to make amends with god through jesus because if you don't you receive the warrior side of jesus if you don't make amends with god through jesus then someday you're on the receiving end of the warrior jesus uh, fourth and, and last comparison uh, between david and jesus is is the kingship so David was king. I think for the most part he was a very good king. He reigned 40 years. I mean, for the most there were a couple of rough patches in there, right? But I think for the most part David David was a, a very good king. 
Jesus, king, king of kings, right? In the passage we just read, uh, Revelation uh, 19, verse 16, on his robe, on his thigh, he has a name written, king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus is king whether we want him to be or not. Jesus is king whether the world wants him to be or not. That's kind of how kingship works, right? Like you, like you kind of don't get to say, like he's king or he's not king. For, for all, all the wickedness in the world, Jesus is king. Jesus is their king, whether they, they want it or not. And someday he's going to come again. He's going to set everything right. And, and everyone is, is going to receive what is due them, right, in, in some capacity. For us as Christians, we want to live and we want to treat Jesus as king right now. Right? That, we want that as our lifestyle. Others are not going to start treating Jesus as king until he comes back. And that's going to be a rough day. But we want to start right now living with Jesus as king. We submit to him. We die for him. We seek his fame. We seek his glory. He he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our devotion. He is worthy of our obedience and our praise. He is a good king. So like I said, I mean, smart people have listed all kinds of similarities between David and Jesus, and you can look those up. Uh, It's pretty easy to find. Uh, For today, though, that both served as shepherds, both served as, you know, slaying the giants, both are warriors, and both are kings. And it's amazing because we can approach the world with incredible confidence because we know that ultimately we're on the winning team. And when you know that ultimately you're on the winning team, like that changes everything about how you walk through life. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have any questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com or email me directly at luke at livinghopehenderson.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care and God bless.